All right, all right, all right. So we are continuing uh, our look at the life of Gideon. And the, the question before us, the subject of the night, is um, glorifying God uh, as we go in our lives, things like that. And Gideon gives us a picture of this. He helps us understand how that's possible. And more than that, he shows us how to fumble the ball and really mess it up. You know, and we've seen a lot of our favorite teams do that, right? So we understand. Um, So let's go again to the study of Gideon. And let's see, I want to... uh, We're going to go down to where we more or less left off, which is... um, and there where he built that altar, Judges six twenty four. So at this point, he's aware that it's the Lord he's dealing with. He's mindful of who the Lord is now. He's uh, most amazed that the Lord would come to him, but nonetheless concedes this is in fact what happened. So he's, he's built his altar, which is his way of acknowledging the Lord here in his life, and the Lord is present. And things seem to be on a good track. But... Glorifying God in our lives, that's another thing. It's one thing to say, I believe in God. To even say, yes, Jesus is Lord. Or, in fact, I accept His death on the cross for my sins and even receive Him. But that's giving God entrance in. It's one thing to receive Him. As we're going to see from Gideon's life, it's quite another to release Him. The Lord comes in that He might come out. There is in the book of Revelation chapter 3 a passage that talks about how the Lord stands at the door and he knocks. And the common interpretation and certainly a, an appropriate interpretation is that that's him wanting entrance in. And, and he's talking not just about individual there but by the corporate. But I believe there's another side of that knocking. There's two sides to a door. And I believe when Christ comes in, he comes into our lives and we don't really realize what we got from God Christ. We're not fully aware of who He is in us, more who we are in Him. And so Christ is in us, and life is going forward, and there's this knocking, louder and louder. And the knocking might come through the school of hard knocks, you know? And, but the knocking is going on, and we don't understand that. But it's the Lord from within saying, let me out. Turn me loose. I came in that I might come out. I came into you that I might live my life through you. I came into you that I might change your life. See, you don't have to try to change your life anymore when you receive Christ. He is the change maker. He changes you from the inside out. And the change that he brings on the inside, he wants to manifest on the outside. Uh, The change on the inside is uh, what happens uh, when he conforms us to the image of Christ. On the outside is what happens when it's called transformation. Be transformed, Romans 12, uh, 2, by the renewing of your mind. That is, you need to discover the truth. You need to see yourself as God sees you. Understand what he says about you in his word and what he's done for you through Christ. And then, then, as you believe and receive that reality, then you begin to walk in it. So that's sort of where we are with, with Gideon. He's, he's had this encounter with the living Lord, and uh, he knows something has happened, but he doesn't fully understand. So the Lord is in his life here, and the Lord wants to, to show him some things. So now go to the next verse, uh, Judges 6, 
25, the Lord says, okay, now that you've acknowledged me, it's time to get with the program. It's time to get this thing going. And uh, so he gives him instruction. And the Lord said, uh, the Lord said to Gideon, take your father's uh, young bull and uh, then uh, the second, uh, the one who's seven years old, and then throw down the altar of Baal that your father built. And then cut down that grove of trees that's next to it. And then build an altar unto the Lord your God. The Lord your God. And now that I'm your God, it's time for you to get serious about me. I'm serious about you, but are you really serious about me? I can't help you if you won't let me take control of you. So he gets Gideon moving by one simple action step. Now what we see in this is... uh, you first got to tear down the altars in your lives. You first got to remove uh, the, the baggage that came from your past, your parents, whomever it might be. But you've got to, those are those altars that Gideon had to tear down. And we all have things in our lives. They're not the places that we worship in the sense that they talked about in the Old Testament. But they are the things that we look to as our identity. This is who I am. This is what made me what I am. Or by virtue of the negatives of my life experiences, I now try to counteract that with some positives. But those positives, the things I'm trying to do to make me somebody and to give me something, whether it might be the accumulation of things or whatever, those things are in fact the idols, the things that are now dictating and dominating your life. And so he's, God is telling him, they have got to go. And we start with this core thing that happened between you and your father, and what he did, and the entrenchment of the false beliefs. Idols are not just something, an object, but it's a false belief system. And many of us have embraced false belief systems over our lifetime, here little, there little. We have these various misconceptions. Many times concepts that we picked up along the way in the world, sometimes uh, through various Christian teachings that are like, we would be called half-truths, because they're accurate but not totally correct. They have an element of truth, but they're misguided, like one step forward, two backward. And so he's saying, these are the things we've got to unload. These are the things we've got to lay aside. Um, The writer of Hebrews would say this in in Hebrews uh, 12 and verse 1 and 2. He talks about laying aside every weight. Laying aside every weight. He's... It's an illustration for those of you that are athletes of, of a runner laying aside the various weights or any other kind of athlete. Any, any encumbrance that might slow you down or hold you back, you've got to lay those aside. Get them off of you. Remove them from you. Um, when I was a boy, we would go up and down the, the bayous of uh, southeast Texas. And I always wondered about this sign that I would see as my dad would drive the boat and I was 10, 12 years old and this sign would say, do not drag the anchor. <laughs> I thought, that is the strangest thing ever. Who would drag an anchor? I mean, I didn't understand much, but I knew the anchor was what stopped you from going forward. And why would you be dragging an anchor? But there were oil pipes under the water that you couldn't see. They were down deep enough that the boat motors wouldn't hit them. But if you were to drag an anchor, you might hit that thing and somehow damage that cause who knows what. We're dragging anchors sometimes. And that anchor is slowing us down. It's holding us back. It's hindering our forward motion. Hindering our progress in our life. And we need to ask the Lord to show us, Lord, are we dragging some anchors? 
Um, are there some, some idols, uh, some misconceptions in our lives, in our past that, that we have picked up and, and that we're embracing and that we are looking through that lens and it's inaccurate? It's a misconception. It's wrong. It's false. It's misguiding us. It's uh, distracting us. And so we need the Lord to show us that. And he will if we ask him. He, he will. So he adds here, after you tear down that altar, verse 26, he says, build an altar unto the Lord your God. So he says, tear down the one and then build the other. Paul uh, puts it like this in the book of Colossians. Let's go over there. And Ephesians, he also, he says this in two places there. Um, and Colossians chapter 3 and then Ephesians uh, chapter 4. He talks about a phrase, he calls it putting off and putting on. In Colossians 3, verse 9, he says, Do not lie one to another, Colossians 3, 9, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So he's saying there's an old man and a new man. You put off the old man. The old man is the person you were in Adam. That was our forefather. But you put on a new man. That's the person we are in Christ. He's our, our new life source. He's our new life. But then he goes on to say, and now having done this, he says, you must put off all the old stuff. Uh, he talks about that uh, earlier up here in this chapter. He says... Verse 8, put off all these things. And he gives, gives a list of various things. So he's saying, once you've put off the old man and put on the new man, you're a new person. And so the old stuff is not you anymore, does not belong to you anymore, should not be a part of you anymore. So now it's time to put off the old ways, to put off the old thinking, see, to put that off, to, to dismiss that, to disregard it, to reject it in Jesus' name. Um, Ephesians uh, chapter 4 he, he says a similar thing. In verse 20, he says, You have not so learned Christ. That is, you've not, this, you have not come to know Christ in this old way. And he's just been describing the old way, which is living according to feelings, the old way of living according to your human understanding and, and your natural, logical thought processes. He says, that's not the way you're to function anymore because that's not the way of Christ in you. So then in verse 21 of Ephesians 4, he says, if so be you've really heard him and have truly been taught by him because the truth is in Christ. He doesn't just say Christ is telling you the truth, but he is the truth. And Jesus himself declared in John fourteen six, I am the truth. So when you have Christ, you have the truth. You have the truth. The one who is true, the one who will tell you that which is true, and the one who will exercise truth through you. Then he, he adds there, this is where we're going to put it off. In verse 22, Ephesians 4, 22. Put off concerning the former manner of life of the old person. Put it off. Put it off. And then he says you can be renewed, verse 23. And then he says you can put on the new. In verse 24, now put on the new. But you can only put off on the outside what God has already put on you on the inside. Um, let's look at uh, Galatians chapter 3. Uh, 
verse 26, he starts Galatians 3.26. He says, you all are children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So to be a child of God means to be a son of God in this case. We're all men here. So you're all sons of God. You know, just that phrase in itself, at one point in time when I heard it, and still even to this day, it often almost brings me to tears. I mean, now think about that phrase, son of God. Jesus is the son of God. The only begotten son of God. That's who he is. And now suddenly, because of Christ in you, you are given that same term of endearment as a son of God. Um, to be sure you're clear on that, let's uh, hold, hold your place to Galatians. We'll come back to that. But I want to take you over and just for a moment uh, call your attention to 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 and 2, uh, God talks about the magnitude of his love for us. And, uh, you know, love, I've been thinking about that uh, for us men, it's, uh, it's a word that it's hard for some of us to wrap our, our heads and hearts and minds around. It's just, it's, it's, so I want you to think of love as, as well, we say God loves you, as God cares about you. God is concerned for you. God has got your back. See, that's, that's love. Okay, that's the practical side of love. Because um, sometimes uh, the word love doesn't hold a good meaning for some of us. But nonetheless, First uh, John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love, what kind, what type of love the Father has bestowed upon us. So his, his love is not just saying, I love you. But he's an action God. And so he bestowed upon us something that demonstrates his love for us. And then he explains that we should be called the sons of God. See, he adopted us into his family. He made us his children. We are his sons. We who were orphans, we who were strangers, we who were foreigners, aliens, enemies of God, he made us his sons. He brought us into the family, as it were, and embraced us in the very same way that he does the Lord Jesus. Because when you accept Christ, that means to the Father, you've accepted me, and accepting my son puts you in a very good place with me. So now you have become one of his own. You're one of his sons. And so he says that you should be called the sons of God. Now called, he's not just talking about as a name, but as an identity, as a person. You are a son of God. You're royalty. To go back to the word real, um, two of the early definitions of the word real from the European side uh, had to do with regal or royal. That's what real meant. Regal or royal. So you can step up to the place of royalty and be regal when you're real. But that being real comes from being real in the Lord. Because only in Christ are you royalty. See, only in Christ are you a son of God. Only in Christ are you made kings and priests, Revelation 1 tells us. Kings and priests. Wow. This is huge. But hang on to that kings and priests idea. We might have time to come back to that later. Um, now, in the... In verse 2, he says, Behold, now we are the sons of God. See, this is not about a future time in heaven when we die and we all are up there with the Lord. Now we are sons. No, he says, you're sons now. You're, you're sons now. And, and these, this phrase has to do with adult sons. We're not talking about little kids. Now, it is true we need to grow up in spiritual maturity. We need to grow up in spiritual wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Yes, of course. But he's talking about we are at, as adult sons in Christ. That's who we are. Then he says, this is who we are now. And he says, but it does not 
yet appear what we shall be, but when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall be, we shall see him as he is, but like him, one and the same. So he, the Son of God, the only begotten, and now in Christ, we also are sons of God. So your family, you're really our family. You have a sense of belonging above and beyond anything you've ever thought possible, certainly anything that you ever had before in any other earthly family. You have a connection here. You have a relationship. You have a family. So we're back to uh, Galatians. Um, are we in Galatians? Yeah, Galatians chapter 3. And uh, so he says, in verse 26, you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So it's about exercising faith in the person. And to say faith in Christ means that you put your faith in him. That is, you look to him as your source now. You're receiving him as your life now. You're entrusting your life to him. So this is all an exercise of faith. It's, a, it's an attitude. It's a disposition within you. It's an, a, a faith response. By faith in Christ. And then verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ. Have put on Christ. And the phrase baptized is, is a, a picture of being brought into union with Christ. It's about a spiritual baptism. We're not talking here about water baptism. This is about when, when your life is baptized into Christ. Well, such as what he said in Romans 6. Uh, chapter uh, 6 verse uh, 1 through 4. He explains that. But he's saying here. At the moment you receive Christ, you're baptized into Christ. Your life is placed into Christ, and you become one with Christ. And at that point, he says, you have put on Christ. You put him on on the inside. So Christ comes in on the inside. Now you've put him on, so you've got Christ in you. That's why Paul uses that phrase so often, over 167 times. Christ in you. Christ in, in the Lord. Uh, the Lord in you. You in him. Over and over. Because this is the core of it all is this new connection, this new relationship. All of us in Christ, because Christ is in us. What does it look like to be in Christ? Gideon has gotten a glimpse of his new identity. He has to put off the old, put on the new. But how does that work out? Um, it, it, it took place, Paul describes, in, uh, let's go back, Galatians, just a chapter here, Galatians chapter 2. Um, to to be in Christ is is to find this new life. But how do you get in Christ, and what does it mean to be in Christ? And so, in uh, Galatians two twenty, he says, "I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live; yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me." So this is Paul's explanation. I'm going to come back to that and explain it in a moment. But in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he, he talks to us about this in a little different way. And he uses a different phrase. But in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Verse 17, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. The old, all things are become new. So the old life is removed and it's replaced with a new life. And then he says, and all things now are of God. So old is passed away, all are become new. Verse 16, prior to that, he says, Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. So he's saying, we're no longer 
making our evaluation based on the human perspective, and we don't look at ourselves based on how we look on the, on the outside. That's the flesh, our humanity. Whenever you see Paul use the fle- phrase flesh, he's mo- mostly talking about our humanity, uh, the person we are on the outside, our body, mind, will, emotions, the, the human dimension. This is what he's referring to. So that's what he's talking about here. And uh, so he says, we, we don't know ourselves after the flesh. He says, we once knew even Christ after the flesh. That's all we knew was this, this physical person named Jesus Christ. And then we discovered there was more to him than meets the eye. We realized God is spirit and Jesus is God. And suddenly we see the spirit of Christ. So Romans 8, um, Romans chapter 8, let me read a verse there for you. Paul talks about that, and um, he talks about the Spirit of Christ, and he talks about the difference between flesh and spirit. So he's going to give us a contrast. Romans 8 and verse 9. In Romans 8 9, he says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So there's two realms of existence. The human realm is in the flesh, and the divine realm, the the uh, spiritual realm is to be in the spirit. So in there has to do within the realm of, uh, in the domain of, in the sphere of the spirit versus the flesh. Now, we still have a fleshly body, but our lives are no longer tied to our humanity. They're now tied to the spirit of Christ within us. That's our new life source. This body is no longer our life. We no longer have to depend on it as the sole source for us to sustain ourselves and, and to prove ourselves. We now have a new life source from within. And so he says there in uh, 8, 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, now if is a word of condition. So he's saying, but the condition is, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you, that is the Holy Spirit. Now, if any man does not have the spirit of Christ, that person does not belong to Christ. So he's saying, you've got to have the spirit of Christ. Remember, God is spirit, and Christ uh, was a spirit being in a physical body the Son of Man, but also the Son of God. And the Son of God resided in the Son of Man. So there was the two in one. What has he just told us? He's saying, when you receive Christ, His Spirit comes into you. The Spirit of Christ indwells you by the virtue of the Holy Spirit. And that life in you is the new life, which is in fact your new identity. So you exchange an old identity, the old is out, and you get a new identity, the new is in. Um, I want to illustrate that. But I'm going to need a volunteer. So be thinking about who might be a volunteer. (laughs) Tyler's coming? Okay. It's just so we got a serious volunteer here that is going to be strong and take care of this job. Okay, so we're going to start with that in your hand. And evaluate that for us, Tyler, and tell me what you think it is. Oh, let's move this way because I'm getting an echo. Okay, so he has assessed correctly. It is water. Okay, so he's holding a jar of water. Now, apologize for the jar, but they only had plastic glasses that I could find, so this is my jar. Uh, so we have in hand a jar of water. So hold it where they can see the water better. Turn this side so it faces out or hold this on the back. It doesn't matter. Okay, so you see that? Everybody's familiar with water. You all know about water. And uh, so what color is water? Let's start with that. So basically it's clear. No color there. 
And, and um, what else can we say about water? What, what does it smell like? Give, get a whiff. Any, any odor to water? Chlorine. Maybe chlorine, <laughs> but only if you have a good sniffer. I, I think he doesn't have a good sniffer. <laughs> this is well water. It can't be chlorine, so you're wrong about that. So you disqualify it. He's out. Okay, we lost our first example. <laughs> All right. So it could be chlorine, and sometimes it is, and chlorine has a pretty strong odor, I give you that. But this is the well water from right around here, so I'm assuming that it doesn't have chlorine, but they might have thrown some in just for fun, or for safety. So we have water, it's uh, clear, has no smell. Uh, if we were to taste it, what would we say about water, basically? It's just plain water, no real major taste. I mean, it certainly doesn't taste like Coca-Cola or uh, uh, any of these other things that we might, any other, other, other beverage for that matter. So it, it has no, no color, no odor, no flavor. Um, and it just, it's good for your body, no doubt. What do they, some say as much as 90% of our body is made up of water. So our body clearly needs it. It needs it for circulation. It, it needs it for digestion. I mean, it needs it just for every cell of the body. We've got to have it for a fact. But in and of itself, it's pretty, well, let's face it, blah. So most of the time, if we have a choice between water and some other beverage, we might just take something else because it tastes better, right? And so we like that. Now, I have in hand something, and um, this is uh, not the absolute best, but it will do for the illustration. Okay, so tell us what you think that is. Folgers Instant Coffee. All right, so easy enough. Coffee. Coffee. Okay, now, I'm going to help him out here because he's got his hands full. So I'm going to open this if I can. Don't use your teeth. That's what I'm told as a kid. But, but my mom's not here, so <laughs> and my, mother, my wife's not here, so maybe we're okay. Now, so we've got our coffee, and uh, we've got our water. Now, we're going to do a little experiment. It's pretty simple. So all you got to do is pour it in. Yeah, just toss it on in there. Okay, now let's show it what's happening. So what's happening? Okay. Okay, we're seeing some change here. Let's pretend that's the coffee stick, unless somebody wants to donate their pen. And uh, just kind of whirl that around in there. Give that a stir. More or less. More or less. Okay, so he's stirring it around. And, uh, okay, tell us what you think now. Give it a whiff. What does it smell like? Sort of, kind of, maybe. <laughs> More or less coffee, kind of, kind of like coffee. Okay, so it's, but we have, wait a minute. Uh, you call that coffee? What is that? What did he call it? But it's, but what's this new product? It's, yeah, it, it came instantly, that was pretty good. But it's still in the end result, the end product is what? It's coffee. It is coffee. <laughs> It may not be your version of coffee, but it's the best we got for the illustration. So we have coffee. Okay, we have coffee. Now, we don't call it water coffee. We don't call it coffee water. We now call it coffee because it's changed. It's a new creation. Coffee enters that water, and that water took on the identity of the coffee. The coffee was the dominant. The water was the receptor, and the water received the coffee. The water just sat there, and it received the coffee. And when the coffee entered the water, the water was changed into a new creation. The water became something entirely different than it was before. Now let's consider th this. 
So it has the smell of coffee. If we were to drink it, I'm not advocating that. But if you were, it would have the taste of coffee. Maybe not the strong coffee my wife likes, but it would taste like coffee. It, uh, it smells like coffee, looks like coffee, tastes like coffee, and we call it coffee, sort of. Um, but we call it coffee. Now, what, what we have here is it's changed its color, changed flavor. See all the different aspects of the identity? It takes on the different qualities of coffee. Um, color, flavor, taste, it takes on the flavor. And there's something else about coffee. Something that a lot of you like in the mornings. The caffeine. Yes, of course, the aroma. I actually say I like the smell of coffee better than I like the taste of it. The aroma of coffee is amazing, especially if it's good quality. But the caffeine, now that's another story. Caffeine is what we would call the secret ingredient. It's got the power punch. Man, it gives us energy. It gives us a boost. And the secret ingredient for us as new creations in Christ is Christ in us. So what happens to us, thank you much. What happens to us is, when we receive Christ, He comes into us. And He takes our plain, ordinary lives, and He changes us into a brand new person. And the old is out. It's passed away. It's dead. It's gone. Crucified with Christ. That old life ended. It's not me anymore. I might have memories of it. I might sometimes act on it. But that's not me. Remember, real came from that word, re-alias. That stuff about my past, that's the alias. That's, that's the person I was, but it's not me. It's not me. And no matter what other people say about me in light of that, that's not my life. It's not my identity. So let's look again at Romans, I mean at um, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and uh, 18. And let's just, in, in light of that illustration, rethink but he just told us here. So he says, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man or any person be in Christ. And the word be indicates it's a state of being. He's not talking about doing. He's talking about being. The essence of Christianity is you become a new being. You move, we, we even on the human plane, we don't call ourselves human doings. We talk about ourselves as human beings because our essential makeup as a human is our humanity and that's who we be. That's who I am. That's who you are. We're human beings. And the same is true now in Christ. So if any man be in Christ, so we must simply be. The doing comes out of being. Once I settle into the reality that Christ is in me and I'm in him, I have a new source from which I can do whatever it is I do. Now the doing will always be done through my humanity, working through my hands, feet, mind, emotions. I have to show up. I have to be available. That Gideon had to tear down that old altar. But the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him. And he had a new ability. He had a new courage, a new confidence. And therefore he acted out based on that new life source that was now available to him. The same about us. Yet so if any one of us is in Christ, we are a brand new person. Now, the mindset for most of us is one of becoming. So we see ourselves as becoming a new creature. But it does not say that. It says you are. This is who you are. Not what you're becoming, but who you are. Now, we're going about it to identity. We're talking about the person you are on the inside. I'm not talking about your conduct on the outside or your 
human performance track record. I'm talking about your true self. If you ever get in touch with your true self in Christ, you can begin to live out of that source, which is Christ as your life. And as he begins to live through you, you'll begin to see a change on the outside. The transformation begins to occur. Now, it's going to look like, it's going to look like you're becoming a different person. But that's not the case. It's simply the fact that you are discovering who you have already become. You're discovering the identity of who you already are as a new person in Christ. And now you're simply living out of it. Let's take the word growth. The word growth is a mysterious word, especially as it's used in the Christian context. So we talk about Christian growth, and we start thinking, well, he's really growing in the Lord. And they, Well, why? Well, because he's going to church more often, he's praying longer prayers, uh, he's memorizing more scripture, and he's read a whole lot more of the Bible. So he's growing. Is he really? Really? Not, it, not necessarily spiritually. He's growing in knowledge, intellectual, but is he really growing spiritually? That's not spiritual growth. That's intellectual growth. But growth is enlargement. You go out in these woods where you just were today, and you look around at some very tiny trees. They're quite small. They're all kinds. You've probably got oaks and pines out there, but you take a little small pine tree, a little seedling pine, very tiny, and you look at that tree. Is that becoming a pine tree, or is it a pine tree? It is a pine tree. 100% pine tree. Just not as big as that great big one that we can look up high and can't hardly even see the top of it. But it's the same tree. 100% the same tree. You see, all of Christ is in you from the day you say I do to Jesus and receive him as Lord and Savior. You're 100% Christ-like because of him in you. It's his life in you. All of Christ is in you. John chapter 1 verse 16 says, Of his fullness have all we received. The moment you receive Christ, you receive him in his fullness. Not in bits and pieces, not here a little and there a little, but the whole thing. I used to kind of conceive of it as being like on an assembly line. So I become a Christian and now I'm on this assembly line and I'm going along and more and more I get more parts added to me until one day I'm going to become a full-fledged automobile. I'm going to come out the other side and I'm going to have my engine inside and I'm going to have the seats in place and the steering wheel and the tires are on and I'm finally a car. No, I'm not on some assembly line slowly becoming a piece here and a piece there until one day, someday, somehow, if, if I don't die too soon, I might become like Christ. No, he makes us like himself as a new creation. At that moment, we're conformed to the image of Christ. His image comes into us. We bear the image of Christ. Um, Jesus, on one occasion, was asked, you know, well, what about this business of paying taxes and whatever? And he said, well, bring me a coin. And he says, well, whose image is on the coin? And so they, they look at the coin and they say, well, of course, it's Caesar. Well, Caesar's the man. See, he's, he, he's the leader. He's the dictator. He rules. And so his image is on. So Jesus says, given to Caesar that which is Caesar's and given to God that which is God's. And we think about tithing. <laughs> he's not even at all talking about money. He could care less. Who is he? He's the king. He's the Lord. He doesn't... No. He's talking about your image. Whose image is on you? You were made in the image of God. And when you receive Christ, you're recreated into the image of Christ. So if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. You've been recreated with a new image. A new life within. And that life within you 
is the life of Jesus Christ himself, imparted to you when he came in by his spirit. This is the new you. And he's saying, as this new person, it's time to allow that new life source to flow through you. Um, uh, I enjoy fishing, like to get down the river. And uh, let's look a moment. Jesus talks about this, about rivers. Pretty cool how he knew I would like rivers, so he threw in a story about rivers. That's kind of nice of him. But uh, anyway, there's a story about rivers. So in John chapter 7, it was the last day of the feast, and the feast was to celebrate. And uh, so they were celebrating. In verse 37, John 8, I'm 737, John 737, it says there, um, In the last day of the feast, which was the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. So he's providing an invitation. So he said, If you're hungry, if you have a desire and a need, come to me. He's not talking about thirsty for water. He's talking about thirsty for life. And if you're, if you're thirsty, if you realize you need something more, you want something more, and you're not satisfied with where you are and what you've got, then you say, it's time to come to me. Because you're not going to find it anywhere else. That's who I am. That's what I'm here for. So come to me. And, and drink is the word for partake or receive. And then he adds, he that believes on me. Now we understand how we're supposed to drink. We drink, we partake of Christ by believing on him. And the word on has to do with dependency or reliance. So believe on me. If any man, so he believes on me, and then as the scripture has said, when that happens, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So when I'm down in Brazil, I like to compliment them, and one of the compliments is that they have the most famous river in the world, the Amazon River, which I've had the privilege of being on in various parts, from one end of that thing to the other. I've been at the front and the back, from the beginning to the end, and so... We talk about that river, but I say, you know, that's a powerful river. But it's nothing compared to the river of life within you. The river of life. That river is huge, big, wide, massive. I mean, anything gets in its way, it's wiped out. But there is a power source in you, a river of life within you. And you don't have to try to get it out. You don't have to pump it out. In fact, you've got to stop it. You have to do something to keep the river from flowing. And that, my friends, is the tragedy of most Christians in America, in the world, in fact, today. We're doing things to quench the Holy Spirit, to block the flow of life. And therefore, instead of a river coming out of us, instead of a gusher flowing out of us consistently, continuously, in every life situation, we have a little drop here, a trickle there, a little, uh, a small stream, perhaps. And on occasion, we have a little bit of a gusher uh, of an intensity of flow that breaks through and overcomes a need or a problem. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about a continuous flow of this awesome presence and power of God's Spirit, which is, in fact, the very life of Jesus Christ. So he said, this is what he wants to do in and through us. In verse 39, but this spake he, this he was speaking of was the Spirit, which they that believed on Christ should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given but he's referencing the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, as we just read in Romans 8. Now, let's go back to Judges and tie this all together. We're talking about glorifying God. Well, how can God be glorified? By simply allowing Christ to live through me. 
How can God be glorified in my life? By simply allowing Christ to be himself in me. When Christ is himself in me, the Father is glorified. Because Jesus Christ in you, Colossians 1.27, is the hope of glory. Because Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Christ is the Lord of glory. He is the glory of God. Glory means the manifest character and conduct of the Lord. The glory of God is simply the expression of God. It's like when we see the sun, the brightness of that sun. We're not really seeing the sun. We're seeing the light that comes from the sun. We're seeing the brightness of the sun. We, we experience the intensity of the rays of the sun, and our earth benefits from the nutrients that come because of the bright light of the sun. But the sun is behind the light. But the sun is there. And the same is true of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God and the light of the world. So his light wants to shine in you and through you. His light wants to come in you and through you. So let's go back. Christ in you is the hope of glorifying God. And in, in uh, Colossians chapter 3 verse 4, it says, When Christ who is our life shall appear, then the Lord is glorified. So Christ has to appear. That is, he has to be made manifest. The word appear means that he becomes manifest. So it's talking simply about Christ expressing his life through you. So as you simply allow the Lord Jesus to live his life through you, whatever you say, whatever you do, wherever you go, it's him leading, guiding, working. So it doesn't matter the type of things you're doing. You know, Jesus glorified the Father in everything he said and did. I mean, the Father reported that and, and Jesus acknowledged that. So let's think about what that meant. Jesus walked along the Sea of Galilee and the Father was glorified. Jesus took a boat ride and the Father was glorified. Jesus sat down with his disciples for the last meal and the Father was glorified. It wasn't just when he preached the profound Sermon on the Mount or when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Yes, those are powerful things. But everything about Jesus was powerful. And everything about Jesus glorified the Father. He said, I do always those things that please my Father. He reports that over and over in the early uh, Gospel of John, uh, chapters 5, 6. Uh, he just keeps telling us that. So, Jesus, by virtue of the Father in him, was being glorified. And the Father was being glorified through the Son. So it was a both and. It was a both and. And so now looking at Gideon, we see this. He tore down the old altar. He built the new altar. And now it says, and uh, everybody got upset with Gideon. But here, let's go back to his father. There's always redemptive qualities about all earthly fathers. And so, look, the people of the city came and they saw this altar of Baal had been torn down and this other altar to God had been built. Blasphemy, in their view. You know, just the opposite of what we might think today. So, they're all upset. I mean, the townspeople are upset. But... To backtrack, when Gideon built that altar, even though he honored and obeyed the Lord in doing it, there's a little side story here that it adds on. Oh, and by the way, he did it at night, secretly, because he was afraid. Afraid of whom? First and foremost, his father and his father's household. So his first thing back was to his father, his earthly father, and his earthly family. See, he was the youngest, and he figured, Dad and, and, and my older siblings are going to come down on me for this. I'm really going to catch it now. Then it says the townspeople too, because he knew they were all pro-Baal. Everybody was pro-Baal now. So, but he built the altar anyway. 
The townspeople the next day are in a rage. They go to, they go to Gideon's house. Bring him out. We want to kill this loser. You know, this traitor. We're going to take this dude down. He's going down. He's got to die. And the father comes out. And he says, hey, no big deal here. If Baal is who he says he is, let Baal defend himself. Enough said. It's a done deal. I'm out of here. So leave my kid alone and deal with your God your way. But leave him out of this. And they all go away. So his dad finally stood up to his son. You know, there was a time, you know, I didn't see, at times there was most days my dad was so busy working and so busy keeping up with uh, five kids and my wife and constant health problems. And, but there came a time when these older kids really, they, you know, back in the day we had bullies and we had real bullies, not like this stuff we got in America today. We've got, I'm talking about serious people that like to take you out. And, and so these guys would gang up on me because I, I don't know what, but anyway, they, they took it out on me and others, of course, too. And so this particular day, they had been hassling me, and they, one of them had a car. He was older and had dropped, uh, failed a couple of grades, and so he had a car. And so he came by the house, and uh, they were out there honking the horn and calling me every kind of name. And boy, my dad looked out the door, and, and that was, okay, I've had it with this. So he, he ran, got his shoes on, ran and went out and got in the car, and they tailed it when they saw him running out. And so he chased him. Until he got where, and they, they finally, he cornered him. And he got out and he said, don't you ever come back. Don't you ever talk to my son about anything again. He said, or I'm coming after you and your parents. And he said, you're going to have a problem. <laughs> you know, so, and they were gone. And it's like, whoa, my dad came to my defense. I mean, I didn't think he even knew things like that were happening to me. But he wasn't going to have it. And so he came to my defense. Can you imagine what Gideon must have felt like? Here he thought his dad didn't even know he existed. He was the least. Oh, he thought his dad just thought, saw him as just an old workhorse. But his dad rallied around him, stood up for him, and defended him at a time when he needed it. And I believe that was a boost. We never see any comment about that from Gideon. But the next thing we see is the word got out. The Midianites came in force. Now, 120,000 died, so there was, surely there had to be well over 200,000 came. And there was a huge army. I mean, they were not going to have this. Some guy builds an altar to God and tears down our God and his altar. We're coming after you. So the whole group came. That's the very next verse, 33. And then verse 34, this is the turning point. Verse 34, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. You see, I mentioned this afternoon, or this morning rather, about my friend who thought he was filled with the Spirit because he had asked God's Spirit to take control of this or that. Until one day he realized he had not given him himself. And you see, Gideon had to come through that father issue and see his father wasn't what he thought. And then Gideon had to take a stand. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and as soon as the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, there was a new courage and confidence that in spite of the fact that this huge army was amassing against him because of what he had done, he blew a trumpet, which was the clarion call, the call to battle. He stood up and began to lead. He stood up and he took his position as a leader. But it was the Spirit of the Lord that came upon him. So when God's Spirit takes control of your life. When you're filled with God's Spirit, you're filled with the Lord. So we have Christ. He comes into us on the inside. 
But when he fills us on the outside, his presence and his power, we now have new strength, new courage, new boldness, new confidence, new enabling, new empowering. We have whatever we need. Everything you need is in Christ. And in Christ, you have everything you need. And when you allow God's Spirit to take control, when you give him yourself, see Romans 6 talks about this. He says, give yourself, your members, to the Lord. In, uh, in 2 Corinthians, let's look at this. This will be our, uh, our last scripture that I want us to pray about this matter. Well, no, well, i got two scriptures. Sorry about that. Two scriptures, but we're getting close. Um, Second Corinthians um, chapter chapter eight verse five. Second Corinthians eight five. Paul is talking about the Macedonian Christians who were going through a time of travail. And uh, there were other Christians that were going through even more severe problems in Jerusalem. And so the Macedonian Christians said, we're going to help out. And Paul said, this they did, not as we had hoped, but it says they first gave their own selves to the Lord and then unto us by the will of God. So he says, God's will has an order to it. You first give yourself to the Lord and then you can give yourself to others. Then you can do for others. But you first give yourself to the Lord. Now, in... In Paul's version of that, in Ephesians chapter 5, as he refers to the Holy Spirit, he explains it this way. In Ephesians 5, 18, he says, Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And we tend to look at that as a verse that's teaching about not being uh, drunk or an alcoholic. He's not talking about that at all. Have you heard of the phrase... I'm sure you have. D-U-I. All right. What does that stand for? Driving under the influence. See, it doesn't say the influence of what? We all are driving under the influence of something or someone. And what we need to come back and assess is, am I driving under the influence of God's spirit or something else? Something else. It doesn't necessarily have to be alcohol. Certainly in this example, we know that's a reference, probably uh, alcohol, drugs, whatever, something. But it impairs our abilities. It impairs our control of things. It, it limits our function. It stifles us from doing what we could and should be able to do. And the same thing is true of any and everything in our life. Until and unless... We give all that up and ask God's Spirit to now fill that void and take control. And control is not a dominating, dictating thing. It's simply taking His rightful place in us. You and I were designed to contain the Lord of glory. You and I were designed to contain His life. So that in containing His life, we could then experience and express His life. He wants you to experience all that He is. He wants you to have this abundant life. But you can't experience it until you give up trying to be your own self, live your own life, have your own way, do your own thing. 
You've got to lose your life and then you find it. And when you do, his spirit then can take control. Lord, I give up. So I was standing in a prison ministering to prisoners in Alabama. And uh, it occurred to me, you know, at some way, somehow, when they got here, they at some point had to be arrested. And so when you're arrested, oftentimes, and especially back in my day and age, it was like the authorities pointed some gun and they said, give up, hands up. And in man, I mean, they surrender. You know, this is about a surrender. It's like a total giving up. We, we think we surrender to the Lord, and I certainly thought I had uh, in my early days. And um, so I was going along with my life, and things weren't working out. And I'd, I'd keep saying, well, Lord, help me with this, and help me be a better Christian, and help me uh, with my anger issues, and help me with my sexual urges, and just help me, help me, help me. And, and, and the Lord would wonderfully work in these different areas. But, you know, over a period of a, of a year or two of this, one day the Lord just abruptly stopped me and he said, you know, he said, I'm not your garbage collector. You keep giving me your garbage, but I came for you. <laughs> I came for you. He said, I'm, I'm glad to take care of your problems. I'm glad to fix your needs. And I want you to see through all that, that I do love you and I'm here to take care of you. But sooner or later, you've got to give me yourself. You've got to give up. You've got to stop trying to be your own person and do your own thing. And you've got to give up on all that. And let me take you and make you the person I intend for you to be. And that's the best you can be. Then your life is full of joy and peace and meaning and purpose like it could never ever be any other way. But you've got to do that. And I had to kind of come to grips with that and say, wait. But Lord, I thought you were in control. I'd give you this and I ask you to, uh, to, to your spirit to teach me your word. And I understand the scripture and I ask you to witness through me. And people got saved. And yeah, he says, yeah, that's all true. But... That's such a small thing. He said, just think what would happen if you would give me your total self and let me take you completely and work through you. Not just occasionally in some small area, once here, a little there, but all the time, in every area, every moment of every day. Huh. And that's what is called rest. Hebrews 4.10 says, you'll not get to that place of rest until you cease from your own efforts. Giving up is the hardest thing. We've talked about that in different ways already. But we have to come to that place. Those prisoners stood there in that, in that jail. There was about 15, 20 of them. And as I began to share with them the scripture, and God's spirit began to speak, and I said, you know, there comes a time when you've just got to raise your hands and say, Lord, I give up. And all of a sudden, prisoners began to raise their hands and say, Lord, I give up. I give up. I give up. And I give myself over to you. Not just giving up as, but that's the turning point. Now I give myself over to you. I give up. But then I present myself to you as a living sacrifice. I yield myself and I yield my members to you. Now, Lord, you take me. Make me the person you want me to be. Lord Jesus, live your life in me. Have your way with me. Just be yourself in me. That's all Jesus wants to do. And when Jesus is allowed to be himself in you, you'll finally be free to be real and be yourself in him. The best you can be. You can't improve on what God made you as a new creation, but you can relax and enjoy it. So, no sense trying anymore. Just rest in him. Let's, let's have a prayer together that uh, we should stand for this prayer. 
<clears throat> and may this, may this be your prayer. This, this could be a true turning point for you here. So let's, let's be really focused on this prayer. Uh, Lord, uh, we've had a full day, a busy day. Uh, uh, we played hard, worked hard, but uh, right now I pray, Lord, you would give us the grace of concentration to get really focused here. Focused. Uh, Lord, as tired as we might be or as we might want to just veg out or who knows what right now, uh, Lord, may we get focused on you. You said that we would find you if we would seek you with our whole heart. Uh, Lord, we've heard a good story last night about uh, the treacherous road that we can take when we don't follow your path. And uh, Lord, we've all been down our own path like that and we know that's a dead end. It, it's uh, it's not a solution. It, it's a... Uh, ends in disaster, death, destruction. So, Lord, we want to turn to you. Lord, in fact, right now, I turn to you, Lord Jesus. This is my prayer. Lord, I turn to you. Uh, I acknowledge that my flesh is weak, that no matter what I've accomplished or achieved, what I have or don't have, none of it matters. It's not the answer. It's not the solution. It's certainly not my life. These have become like idols. Lord, they've become the things I've looked to to make me who I was, to get my identity. I identify myself in all those things. Lord, there's so many a man who's lost his career and his whole life collapses because that was his life, his occupation, his, his business, his lose their possessions and suddenly they have nothing. And Lord, uh, we don't want to be stuck in like that. We want to come out of all those things. Uh, we we want to come back to the cross. Like Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Lord, we revisit the cross right now. Yeah, we know you died on, on that cross for our sins, but we died with you. Lord, I readily now take my place on that cross. You said, I've got to lose my life. Well, I lose it right now. I let go of everything I thought was who I am. All the false uh, rhetoric of the various things people have said about me that I've taken on as my own identity. It's not even me. All the stuff I've achieved and accomplished that I thought made me who I was. Lord, that's not my identity. That's not really me. So, Lord, I let all that go on the cross. I just let myself go to you on that cross and I thank you right now, Father, I am crucified with Christ. My old life is dead and gone. That's not me anymore. I praise you. I've been raised from the dead by the resurrection power of your Holy Spirit. I've been raised to walk in a new life. And so, Lord, I, I, I give up now on all of my past. I just give up to you, Lord Jesus. I surrender all to you. I, I give you my spirit. I give you my soul. I give you my body. I give you my mind, Lord, my will, and my emotions. Lord, I give you all I am, all I have, my family, my possessions, my career, everything. I just give it all to you. Lord, you take me now. Make me the person you want me to be. Holy Spirit, I ask you to take control of my life and fill me with your spirit. Take control of every area of my life. Fill me with your spirit. Take control of my mind, my will, emotions. Live your life through me. Lord Jesus, be yourself in me. Have your way with me. Live your life through me. Yes, Lord, thank you that Jesus Christ is now my life, my Lord, my all. And I can do all things through Christ who is my strength. I praise you, Lord. You are my courage, my confidence. You are the power and the ability for my life. And I thank you, Lord, for a new beginning and a fresh start. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.